This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. <laughs> you guys doing uh, all right on the tail end of two, uh, two fall breaks in our community? Ready for people to uh, return back to, to life, rhythm, school, and work? I know Paulding's already back, but Cod's coming back in now. I got to tell you, that, that music stirs my soul, right? Um, I'm not sure what it does, but it gets me amped up. Uh, I said last week, I, I don't know if I want to get in a gunfight or preach, but... Um, uh, you know, I don't know. It moves me. So uh, this week, week two in a series, uh, really week three, Jake kicked it off dealing with uh, why church the question. And then we're walking through our mission statement, how it is that we've taken uh, the great commandment and the great commission and fuse those together in language that explains what, we're be, what we are to be about, why we are to be about it, and how we are to go about it. And we put this up here last week, and you'll see it uh, pretty much everywhere on programs, on sheets you're handed, on the website. But we exist as a church to glorify God by helping all kinds of people find and follow Jesus through gospel-centered ministry. Last week, we talked about what it meant to have our highest value be that of glorifying God in everything we do as a church in the way in which we go about everything as a church, and in the, uh, the way in which we go about our lives and that which we do as individual believers, as um, uh, couples, as families, as homes. And this week we're going to move in particularly what we, uh, into what we believe is the most glorifying thing that we can do as a corporate effort together as a church that's helping all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. And this morning particularly we're going to be emphasizing what it looks like and what it takes to help all kinds of people. Because if you haven't noticed, and it's just not us, you look around in most churches, they're pretty monolithic. They are not representative of what the gospel has been producing throughout history. They're not representative of what God said the gospel would produce as the, the walls and the barriers and the boundaries that separate men and women from one another due to sin come down and bow at the foot of the cross. They're shattered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we look at one another primarily through the lenses of the gospel. Rather than race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status or education level or vocation, so on and so forth, I could go. But we need help here. Most churches need help here. We need to hear again the truth of the gospel. We need to hear again the fruit that the gospel usually produces. And we need to have some of our idols ripped up and destroyed in our lives because God's heart beats for all kinds of people. And in here, in some ways, we represent all kinds of people. If we were to get uh, 30 or 40 of your stories on video, you would hear all kinds of different 
backgrounds and angles and ways in which God has called you to himself and moved in your life. But in other areas, we have so far to go, and it starts just by getting a sense of unity and passion around this as a supreme value, that we intend to be a people of all kinds of people finding and following Jesus and helping all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's one of the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, one of the books primarily just written autobiographically, or biographically rather, about Jesus' life and ministry. And Matthew chapter 1 is rarely used in the church um, apart from Christmas. Christmas is coming up here in a little while now. For those of you that need to hear this, it is after Halloween and after Thanksgiving, then comes Christmas. We have people who I'm sure out of mental fog and confusion from COVID have already put Christmas lights up um, in and on their home. I guess they're deciding if a pandemic's going to keep going 19 months in, they'll have Christmas whenever they want to, right? And the stores kind of pathetically just hoping to generate revenue are already throwing up their Christmas stuff everywhere. But we're, we're going to hear a word from God primarily from the genealogy of Jesus this morning. Those of you that are familiar with this know that there are some what we would perceive in our clean, tame, somewhat lame version of biblical Christianity that most of us experience, a little off-colored folks, um, a, a little folks who, who may um, have done more of this than that or more of that than this in Jesus' genealogy, and yet we find them named individually in the line of Jesus himself. Let's begin here, and I want to point out just a few. I'm going to read through a few verses, and then I'm going to um, tell you about a woman that I was introduced to, or at least rather her story this week. Let's start with verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Skip down to church, uh, church. Skip down to verse, verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose wife, or whose mother, rather, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uh, without naming her, the, the writer of the genealogy of Jesus is naming who? Bathsheba. Yeah, Bathsheba. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. All right. I just want to, to pause there. We're going to come back here and work our way through it, but... Um, one of the, the television shows that my uh, oldest son and I, Cade, are kind of watching together right now and commenting on is one that it has a few seasons in now. We just discovered it. Um, it's a, an A&E show called 60 Days In. And it started, it started out of a desire of a sheriff in Clark County, Indiana, to sort of clean up the county jail there. Clean up the county jail. It had been a mess. It had been a corrupt mess. It had been um, uh, out of whack in all kinds of different ways. Uh, in fact, the sheriff before him 
uh, ended up going to jail on felony charges. So he came in and he really wanted to make substantial changes to the jail. He knew it was going to take time, and he knew it was going to take a lot of information. And he said, uh, as he and a couple of his senior law enforcement officers that oversaw the jail uh, in the county there began to talk, they, they struggled with how to get the right kind of information to really know what's going on in the jail and how it's going on in there. And he said, if we put undercover COs, correction officers in there, we're not sure that they're going to tell us the truth about other correctional officers. There's just a struggle there. Um, obviously, you can't trust uh, most inmates, um, and it puts them at danger, and they're not going to rat out other inmates. So they were struggling, and they came up with this idea to be able to find regular men and women, basic off-the-street civilians who'd never uh, committed a crime, never been convicted of a crime, uh, and get them to go uh, in undercover as regular inmates, treated as regular inmates for 60 days. And then at the end of the 60 days, those uh, whoever made it that long, and as they uh, c came out and, and quit in various ways, they would debrief with the sheriff um, and with one of his senior guys and just let them know what they saw, what they experienced, what was going on in there. So the show comes out of that. The later seasons, I don't know so much about. I think, uh, you know, we're such a, uh, a wimpy society right now. People will do anything to get their 15 minutes. Uh, but I think in the beginning, it was, it was very, very good. I think A&E sees it as a moneymaker now, and it's, it's probably silly. But um, that first group to go through, uh, it was very, very interesting uh, to watch what they saw and what they experienced and how it impacted them and uh, the information that they were able to give the sheriff at the end of it. Uh, but it's interesting, there is a scene wherein uh, one, of the, one of the men's pods, one of the, the open door kind of, uh, open room kind of dormitories uh, where the men were, uh, there was a little group that would gather for Bible study uh, once a week. And they would get in there and they, they would read scripture and they would talk about it for a little while. Uh, and then they stand up, and then they would all hold hands. And these are rough guys. They would all hold hands, and one of them would pray. And one of these new undercover guys goes, goes in there, um, and he, he's not made to sort of make the 60 days, right? He's just not built for it, and he doesn't. But he goes in there to the Bible study group, and at the end they want to hold hands, and he doesn't want to hold hands. And he doesn't hold hands. He just goes like this. They all pray, and then after one of them lets him know, man, when you don't hold hands, it's disrespectful. And this may be Bible study, but we're going to beat you down if you don't hold hands. And I'm like, I love that. I'm not a hand holder, right? But I try to be a student of culture, and that's their culture there, right? They need Jesus. They need the gospel there. But it's not just them. This week, as I told you, I got to know the story of Catherine Butler, uh, Dr. Katie Butler, who is... Um, a doctor at Massachusetts General in Boston, and she is a trauma and critical care surgeon. A trauma and critical care surgeon. And Katie says that she was raised in a nominal Christian home, which is the, the, the normal church-going home in the United States right now, where you get a little dash of Jesus at home, uh, but Bibles are never open, or, or at church, but Bibles are never open at home. Jesus is not talked about at home. There's never any prayer at home and so um, she didn't carry uh, never had a faith experience never carried into faith uh, any faith into to college or to medical school um, and she said early on in her career as a trauma and critical care surgeon um, she began to, to experience all of the darkness and depravity that comes uh, with a world brutalized by sin and its effects and she says early on in her experience as an ER doctor she uh, was responsible for triaging everything that would come in during a 24-hour period that has the potential to need surgery. 
right? From, uh, from abscessed toes to, to ruptured aortic aneurysm. So, so everything in there, she was responsible for triaging those things. And she said one particular night, one particular shift, the coldness and the depth of the world that she was living in really struck her. She said in one shift she had a young man in his 20s come in who had been bludgeoned nearly uh, to death by a baseball bat from an attacker. His wife had been killed in the attack. And their four-year-old son had watched the entire thing happen. And while she's working on this young man, she's struggling to hold it together, thinking about all that this four-year-old had seen and all that he was going to have to try to deal with. This young man was bleeding into his brain. Uh, immediately following that, back-to-back, in fact, she was pulled off of that, a 15-year-old boy was brought in uh, by paramedics on a stretcher who'd been stabbed in his chest. He'd lost pulse out in the field, and so they were doing CPR on him as he came in, chest compressions. She said, every once in a while, with extreme cases, we will open the chest right there in the trauma bay as a last-ditch effort to try to save a patient's life before even getting them uh, back anywhere else. And said there was a, once she opened his chest, she saw immediately that there was a hole in his aorta and his entire blood volume had spilled out into his chest. She said that she stumbled back, realized they weren't going to be able to save him, and immediately had to go change her scrubs because she had blood all over her scrubs and she had to talk to this young man's parents well right as she finished that and went to talk to the parents who were incidentally from guatemala and had immigrated here to provide a better life for their children and this was the end of their 15 year old's life she gets another call another 15 year old kid this time this young man had been shot in the head she said she saw right away in the team did that his pupils were fixed and dilated so they knew immediately that he'd suffered um brain death the bullet had traversed his brain. Heart was still beating because he was on a ventilator, um, but he was brain dead. And she said, the, the most that I could think to do in the moment was to suture his head back up and clean him up as much as we could so that he would look something like the boy the family had known and loved. She said while she was trying to do that, uh, just a, an unwise or maybe unknowing staff member brings the young man's mother in there. And she says, I'm right in the middle of this process. It's a mess. He's a mess. The mother just wails and screams, drops to her knees. And she said, that was my breaking point. She said, I ran out of the room, found a private place to cry for a little while, got up, cleaned up again, because I still had eight hours to go on that single shift. She talks about the downward spiral that began in her life at that point. She said the next day she drove two hours west of Boston through the Berkshire Mountains. She said it was one of those New England October days. It was just gorgeous. The trees were on fire with beautiful colors, everything changing. Uh, she stopped on a really peaceful bridge that uh, crosses the Connecticut River uh, a couple of hours outside of Boston. And she said she just looked at all that God had created and all that was going on there. She breathed the fresh air. Things were clean. Things were peaceful. Things were calm. And she said, I, I tried to pray, but I had no relationship with God. I was not a Christian. I didn't know Scripture. I had never read the Bible, and I couldn't find anything to say. I had no words to pray. She got in her car, drove back to Boston, continued working 100-hour weeks as the norm, 
And she said she just continued to spiral down and became uh, very suicidal, having suicidal thoughts on a daily basis. She said uh, over the next few years she began fantasizing about driving back up to that peaceful, peaceful bridge and throwing herself off into the Connecticut River. It's not just inmates in a county jail that need Jesus, that need the hope of the gospel, the beauty of restored relationships that come with being part of the family of God, part of a local church that speaks truth and encouragement, challenge and care into our lives and walks with us. It's highly educated trauma surgeons living in one of America's nicest cities that need the hope of the gospel and Jesus Christ. And I just want to tell you this morning, by affirmation and then demonstrate by Scripture, God is about and has always been about helping all kinds of people find the hope and faith in Jesus Christ that comes through the gospel. It's never been about you or about me or about a chosen group alone. Look at Abraham. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew starts with Abraham. It starts with Abraham, but there's something fascinating about this that I was thinking as I was walking through this genealogy and praying through and reading the different accounts of the different names involved. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 14, Abraham encounters a man that if you've heard about, you've probably only heard about because you've read straight through Genesis yourself, or you've heard him brought up in sermons or messages or teaching around financial responsibility and faithfulness before God with regard to tithing, which is completely appropriate because it's the first mention of the tithe, the top 10% of someone's um, income, someone's resources going back to God through a gift. But look at uh, verse 18 of Genesis 14. Well, let me set this up. Let me set this up. There had been a coalition of allied countries come together to take a specific area in the ancient Near East. And in doing so, they had, they had uh, kidnapped some of, of uh, Abraham's family. Well, Abraham gathers, in a sense, a group of special operators. He gathers 318 choice fighters, and he goes out and he engages this coalition, and he defeats them. He defeats them. He comes back in with his men triumphant and just camps on a plane outside of Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up the story. The king of Sodom had come out to meet him, but also another interesting character. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now there's no, uh, no kind of ordinance uh, like um, the Lord's Supper or Communion uh, pointed to here. This is simply a gift for returning warriors. This was very common after battle so they could be renewed and refreshed. He was priest of God Most High, El Elohim, not Elohim, but El Elohim. And this is used in Psalms. It's used again in the New Testament. It's used multiple times throughout the Old Testament to refer to God. And he blessed Abram saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. You've got Melchizedek here acknowledging Abraham as being God's man, God as being the God, Yahweh creator of all that exists. 20, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything. So here's an interesting question. Why, why Abraham, right? 
you've already got Melchizedek, who's a priest in a way that has a lot of mystery around it, and we just don't have answered questions for this, though he's mentioned at other places in Scripture, most notably in Hebrews chapter 7 and other parts of the book of Hebrews. But you've got Melchizedek, who's already a priest of the Most High God. God doesn't choose Abraham and choose a nation. He chooses Abraham and creates a nation. Why not choose Melchizedek and create a nation through him? Melchizedek, in a sense, was already in. He was already one of the convinced. He was already a follower of God. He was already involved in the service of God. But God doesn't do that. God comes and he chooses someone who's an outsider at that point. And he makes a covenant with him. And here's the interesting thing. You might think, well, well, maybe Abraham was also a follower of God then. He just wasn't in that kind of covenant relationship that he was after God comes to him. Not, not the case. What's interesting is that we find this in Joshua 24. This won't be up on the screens, but just listen. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2 says, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods, probably Baal in that area. Abram is a pagan. Abram comes up in a pagan family. Abraham starts as an idolatrous pagan worshiper, just a normal cultural man in that ancient Near Eastern context. And yet, God doesn't choose Melchizedek to do his great work through. Matthew 1 doesn't start with Melchizedek. It starts with Abraham. And I think part of what we should be taking away from this is that God is always pursuing those who don't yet believe. God is always pursuing those who don't yet believe. Another way to say that is God is never satisfied simply by those who are already in. And if you want to see your relationship, not to turn this and make this about you, but it's an interesting byproduct. If you want to see your relationship with God in Christ come alive in a way that it may never have or may not have been in a long time, get involved intentionally in building meaningful relationships with all kinds of people, especially those outside of faith, especially your unchurched neighbors friends and co-workers classmates god is always pursuing those who don't yet believe he could have started with melchizedek from every human understanding as you read scripture and realize melchizedek was already in some kind of relationship with god he was already in some kind of priestly function he was already a king he was influential he was already honoring god and recognizing god as the creator of all. But God doesn't do that. God often doesn't work like we imagine. He often doesn't choose the people we would choose. Right? He's just not impressed by who's whose lists. Not impressed by the top 100 this, the top 25 that. God works how he works, but you can bet on this. He is never satisfied simply with those who are already in. And we better not be either as a church. We better not be either. It's interesting thinking about Abraham with regard to his relationship with Melchizedek. And there are so many names here. 
doing a study of the names and the genealogy of Jesus is such a fascinating study of Scripture. Let's go down to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, another thing that you'll note here is that ancient genealogies didn't mention women. Women weren't included in them. It didn't matter who someone's mother was. It mattered who their father is. And in more ancient tribal cultures today and underdeveloped parts of the world, it still doesn't matter who someone's mother is, who's, who someone's mother is. It matters who their fathers are. That is how lineage is traced. But God is picking up the speed at which, that he, at which he's breaking down these gender barriers and these gender walls that had been erected by sin. So we find not only Tamar mentioned as a mother in verse 3, we find Rahab in verse 5. Super fascinating because most of you will know that Rahab was a pagan prostitute in Jericho. The first city they encounter when it comes time to, uh, to cross the Jordan and begin entering into the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to them. And so you've got this woman, and who knows why she was a prostitute? We don't know. Most often women turn to prostitution because they'd lost a husband. There was no man providing for them and protecting them in their life. But then, just as there are today, there were just some, some sultry, salty people. All right? There were just some broken, sinful people. We don't know Rahab's story at all. We simply know she was a Canaanite prostitute. And, and yet, she finds a couple of spies coming in from the Hebrews. She hides them. She lies to her own leaders about their presence. And she confesses that even though she's a pagan in a pagan culture, a Canaanite prostitute, she somehow heard of the God of the Hebrews, the Israelites. And she knows him and she fears him at some level. And we find her name here in the genealogy of Jesus. If you were making up a faith, you wouldn't put a prostitute in the lineage of your Savior, of your Messiah. If you were just making up Scripture, you'd leave this one out. But here she is. We celebrate Ruth. There'd be no Ruth without Rahab. But Rahab's here, and part of what I think we should be learning from this, Rahab's stories in Joshua 6, you can go back and read that sometime if you want to, is that God loves those. God loves those who are stuck in patterns of sin and brokenness. God loves those. Not tolerates them. Not as eager to judge them, but as holding off for some reason. God loves those who are stuck in patterns of sin and brokenness. He often loves the people that you and I don't even like. Often when you find churches that aren't very evangelistic, right? They just really don't care much about people beyond their walls. At the root of it is really a theological problem. They're really, within their corporate day is, uh, corporate DNA is a belief that God doesn't really like lost people very much. He's offended by their language and their politics and their dress and, you know, all of the, the, the fact that they spend their time here and they spend their time there. And I'll just tell you, church, that's an unbiblical view of the heart of God. And you ought to thank God and I ought to thank God that it's not accurate. Because at one point, God came for us too. We didn't come for him. 
We didn't wake up one morning and just yearn for something righteous and something good. God comes for us. God loves those who are stuck in patterns of sin and brokenness. And they're all around you. They're in your family. They're in your friendships. They live on your street. They work with you. They go to school with you. And often, if we're not careful, the longer we're Christians, the greatest gift God has in terms of momentum and evangelistic effectiveness are the newer people in every church. doesn't matter the church. They are the most on fire for Jesus. They are the quickest to invite friends. They, uh, as a regular pattern, remember what it's like not to have a church family, not to be engaged with other believers, not to have a relationship with Jesus. And they want to see people reached because they know firsthand that God loves those who are stuck in patterns of sin and brokenness. But go on, we've got a couple more to talk about together here. Look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Part of why it almost looks like a dig that, that Bathsheba's not mentioned by name, that's not it at all. It's a reminder to us that she was someone else's wife before David drug her into sin as a king. Now, some of you will remember David and Bathsheba's story. You can find that in 2 Samuel 11. David is king of Israel. He's kind of a superstar spiritually, militarily, politically in terms of leadership. He's wandering around outside on the roof one day, and he sees a, a woman bathing on her roof, which is very common. I hear sometimes people try to make this Bathsheba's issue. Huh, imagine that. Imagine men trying to make it a woman's issue. Um, King David held all the power. He sees Bathsheba and basically tells his men, I want her. Have her brought to me. She has no power, no standing before the king. She comes, she does as he pleases. He has sex with her. A child comes from that. David gets scared. He begins to, to run backwards and deeper into sin. Through a unique set of circumstances, has her husband's, one of his leading warriors and generals, killed, murdered. He's confronted later by his sin, or about his sin, by Nathan. Repents of it. Psalm 51 is a beautiful picture of David's repentant heart being poured out in language and words. But here we find, coupled together, really kind of a triad. You've got King David, Solomon, who was the child of King David and Bathsheba, who became the next king and a man of great wisdom, wealth, and influence. David, Solomon, and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. A story of brokenness, sin, redemption, restoration. And I think what we see here when you think about both David and Bathsheba is that God welcomes, welcomes both the wounded, both the wounded and the wounder. That's hard for us. But God's heart is open to all. His invitation is open to all. Both the wounded and the wounder. That's one of the reasons that uh, if you're a member here, if you're a regular tender, you've been coming for a while, you've heard us say uh, fairly often that no matter where you have been or where you are, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, we believe that God loves you, that you're in here for a purpose. We could go on and on through the genealogy of Matthew, 
looking at different people from different cultures with different circumstances, some who were incredibly faithful, some who were unbelievably dark sinners and failures, all in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus has always been about all kinds of people. God has always been about reaching all kinds of people. His covenant, his promise to Abraham was not just for Abraham, but that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham. We see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. As the people of God are represented all around the world in Christ now. What's interesting is when you look closer to home, even at Cobb County, you see these shifting dynamics. If you do any demographic research on Cobb, you find out Cobb County is 56% white, 29% 29% black, 13.5% Hispanic, and a few percents others blended, so on and so forth. But here's what's amazing. So Cobb County is diverse racially and ethnically. Paulding, Paulding you can just say, see mirroring the movement of Cobb here, but for the sake of time, I'm not throwing out the numbers for all of them. What's amazing is when you look at the school, okay, uh, Cobb County in general, 56% white. Cobb County schools, 35% white. Which means the younger you get here, the more diverse racially and ethnically this county is. And we know, we saw from the Senate uh, elections here as they're breaking that down, that Georgia itself, and especially the Atlanta metro area, is getting year by year, statistically measurably, younger, more ethnically diverse, and more politically diverse. And can I just tell you, this is good news. If we have kingdom-focused hearts... This is good news because God is bringing all kinds of people right here to us. Now, it's bad news if you only want to sit around with people like you and you just want to talk to people who already believe what you, want, what you believe and you want to have neighbors who only vote and think like you. But if you're a gospel-centered follower of Jesus Christ, it's good news because you're going to have the opportunity to talk to and with, to live around, to interact with recreationally and in business, all kinds of people. As our metro area is doing what all metro areas in the United States are, becoming more and more diverse. And this is such a win for us and for the gospel. I know some of you won't remember anything I've said this morning. If I don't tell you what happened to Katie Butler, what happened with Dr. Butler. A few years passed between... That downward spiral. So for a few years, she just continues to spiral down. Um, Suicidal, struggling, depressed. And she said, on one shift, she's overseeing an older gentleman. He'd had a surgery, and after that surgery had some some kind uh, of event following the surgery where his heart had stopped and he'd required CPR for almost 25 minutes. His heart was was able to get started again, but his brain had been deprived of oxygen for so long that he had a severe brain injury. Um, Weeks had gone by. She was just in there checking on him. Family were regularly around him. The neurologist uh, and, and doctors working with him saw no signs at all of hope from his imaging. Uh, the best they could tell his wife and his kids, he was a little bit older gentleman, was that he might might one day open his eyes and be able to track movements, but no more. They would never know him as they had. He would never know them as he had. Um, he'd never be able to interact or, or talk. And she said one day, several weeks into caring for this man, she heard his wife in there belting out 80s music. 
She said, which you don't usually hear in the ER, the ICU, or anywhere like that. She's just in there singing, and uh, I almost sounded like Forrest Gump. She was singing. I don't know why I did that, even being recorded. But, um, but so she goes over to the room, and she says, hey, what's going on? How are you? And, and the wife, with uh, enthusiasm, she saw that she had hung a, about an avocado-sized cross above his bed, and she was holding a cross, and she said, Dr. Butler, I was praying and praying and praying last night, and when I woke up this morning, God said, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. And Dr. Butler said, uh, I had such compassion for her in that moment, but also such, such concern. She said, all I could say was, I, I hope so, I hope so. And she said, but the next day the family called her in. Dr. Butler, come look, come look. Said they had said his name and he'd moved his toe. And she said, she'd heard that before and seen that before. She, and she just imagined probably it was a reflex, even though um, he was basically brain dead. His spinal cord was still intact, and you would see those reflexes from time to time. But uh, they said, no, no, watch, we'll do it now. And they called out his name, and he wiggled his toe. And they called out his name, and he wiggled his toe. Dr. Butler called out his name, and he didn't wiggle his toe. They called out his name, and he wiggled his toe, which she found really, really amusing. But she said the next day he opened his eyes and started tracking their voices. He would move his eyes around based on where they were talking. The day after that, he started squeezing his hand on their commands. And she said, over the next few weeks, this man, who by all human and medical understanding had no potential at all for a full recovery, began talking. He slowly began sitting up. He began joking with them about wanting to put filet mignon through his feeding tube. That's right. Yeah, you know he's on his way to, uh, to health and wholeness then. She said, as medical personnel, we just chalked it up to an outlier. That sometimes you have these cases that they cannot be explained, they can't be reproduced. Um, But she said, she began to seek God then. And she said, she couldn't escape the belief that this wasn't just an outlier. That there was somehow a connection between that devout family's prayer and belief, the prayer and belief of that devout wife, and this man's turnaround. And she said because she thought she knew Christianity, and she said, I thought you know, Christianity is being a nice person. She thought she'd heard the gospel, which is the great danger for most of us here in the Bible Belt. She didn't worry with Christianity. She began to explore other religions. She read the Bhagavad Gita. She explored Buddhism. She read the Quran and explored Islam. And then one night her husband just set her down and said, Would you be willing to read the Gospels in the New Testament? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read Romans. And she said, sure. Because she said, no matter what walk of life you come from, she said that she had seen so much as as a trauma surgeon, so much in the ER, that she had no, she said all of those other religions she realized very quickly were just different pathways for us to earn our own salvation. They were just giving her different lists of here's what you should do to make yourself right with God, to have a right standing before God. And she said, I couldn't get around this thought that no matter what walk of life you come from or who you are, at some point you're going to come through my double doors with some illness or injury. And if we have to earn our relationship and right standing with God, we're all doomed. And she said, I didn't have words to put to it before, but it was sin. I knew I was broken. I knew that no matter how devoted I was to my career and how much I tried to do it well, I would miss things. And those things haunted me. I saw all of the brokenness and violence and the results of those coming in to Mass General's ER. 
But in the Gospels and in the book of Romans, God met her. And she met him. And for the first time, at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, contemplating daily taking her own life, she heard the gospel. Her heart was open to faith. And she realized that what she understood as Christianity and the gospel was not it at all. And in her hopelessness and despair, God came in and God saved her. And he revealed to her his goodness and grace poured out for her in the gospel of Jesus Christ and changed her life. She and her husband became active in church. She went back to work, of course, because the gospel changes everything, right? It changes the lens by which we go through life. And she realized that the gospel was about restoring all that sin had broken and busted up. If you look at Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about what God is doing in the gospel. Verse 26, the Apostle Paul says to the church in the region of Galatia, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, not through ethnicity, ethnicity, not through behavior, not through obedience, but through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And this is the picture that we get in the end as God has worked out all of the implications of Christ's victory on the cross. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, John looks up as he's exiled on Patmos and God is giving him this image and he says, After this I looked and there before me, was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. This picture of purity and peace in the presence of the risen Lord. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The gospel doesn't just save us, it transforms us. Dr. Butler went on to say that work became different for her. She saw the brokenness, but she also saw the beauty. She saw God at work in ways that she hadn't seen him before. She said, you know, there's nothing like a NICU uh, to help reveal how upside down and messed up everything that should be normal is. And the effects of sin on the smallest among us. She said one day she was uh, overseeing a preemie in that little incubator. And you guys have, have seen that. And it just, it looks so unnatural. And she said, you see all kinds of situations and families in there. And uh, said, husbands all, always, you know, react kind of differently. Some stand off back kind of uh, in the room. This husband was not that kind. He always stayed very close. As we would come in, he'd put his arm around his wife as if trying to protect her from getting any more bad news. He was there fully engaged trying to serve and support his family. She said he was this giant guy, six foot five, 250 pounds. He was a Boston bricklayer. And she said she entered the room one day and he was squatting next to that little incubator and had one of his giant, huge, bricklayer, callous fingers stuck in there. 
in the opening, and that his little premature tiny infant son had his entire, his entire tiny little hand wrapped around that big, fat, long finger. And she said it looked so uncomfortable the way he was squatting down there. And she asked him if he needed a chair, and he said, no, I'm okay, thank you. And she said he looked up at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, he's just, he's so strong. And she said then he turned and looked at the little baby boy and said, you just keep holding on to me, little guy, because I'm never letting go of you. And she said in that moment, I realized what a beautiful picture this little infant who'd been so dependent and in danger since he left the womb was for us as human beings before God. Our condition before our Heavenly Father who reaches down, offers us hope, and says to those who will receive it, just hold on because I will not, I will not let loose of you. I will not let go of you ever. And the new life Katie Butler has in Christ now allows her to see not just the bad and the despair and the brokenness, but glimmers of grace and the gospel throughout her life but also in her role as a trauma and critical care surgeon, which she actually just resigned from now. She and her husband have a couple of little, little babies of their own. She's resigned from, from Mass General, is going to stay home for a while and focus on raising her kids. But she's written a book called Glimmers of Grace. Glimmers of Grace, a doctor's reflection on faith, suffering, and the goodness of God. I highly recommend it to you. My prayer, and I, I would ask you, that it become your daily prayer, is that God will help us become a church who helps all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. I just want to close it out this morning as the band makes their way back up here and uh, prepares to lead us in, an, in a time and an opportunity for us just to respond to God and say, am I someone who intentionally is seeking to love and to build meaningful relationships with, with people who don't look like me, don't talk like me, maybe don't share my values, wouldn't vote like me, but God has placed them in and around my life. We have 39 meeting spaces in our church. 39 meeting spaces in this building. From classrooms, that doesn't even count the little breakout rooms, but from classrooms to the worship center to other kinds of spaces, not offices, right? But 39 meeting spaces for ministry and gospel formation to go on. Eight of those are used at least once a week. Eight. That means we have 31 spaces here where people could be exploring a relationship with God, sharing, bro sharing brokenness, involved in healing and restoration kinds of ministries, involved in gospel-centered teaching, confessing sin and repenting and, and receiving the love and the encouragement of other brothers and sisters where we could be investing in families and teens and parents struggling and providing divorce care and on and on I could go. 31 spaces that are never used. They're empty. Week in and week out. And of the eight that are used, only three are used more than once in a week. And I gotta tell you, that doesn't discourage me as much as it lights the fire of my passion and drive. Because God has given us this stewardship. And He's at work making us healthier and more whole, clarifying what gospel-centered wins look like to a church, 
clarifying values and a mission that belongs to him. And we're going to see these rooms begin to fill up. One after another after another. And they're going to fill up with all kinds of people. With people who are younger. With people who are racially and ethnically different than us. With people who don't come in immediately sharing our values and our convictions. Because when God is at work and when redemptive movements are going on, it's a little messy. So I'm going to ask you now, if you will, to stand. You can stay seated if you want to, what, however you want to respond. But I would ask you to pray in this moment that God would break your heart for people far from him. For all kinds of people. And where you need to repent that you would do that this morning. And I'm going to pray that God would cause us to catch fire with a desire to meet and get to know and learn from and interact and eventually share the beauty of the gospel and the life of gospel with people, all kinds of people. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. Thank you.